the podcast for the real world meets the digital world as we explore the intersection of spatial computing and AI. Let's welcome our host, Andrew Ballard. Over to you, AB. Well, g'day and welcome to Spatial, episode four, uh, coming to you in Australia on our national holiday. Um, yes, it's a public holiday down this part of the world, which is nice. It's not quite exactly shrimp on the Barbie weather, but it's good enough for now. And born and bred Australian, um, will take a public holiday anytime it's given. So it's a long weekend for us. Welcome all. I can see uh, we've got the whole band back together, which is awesome. I'm looking in, in front of the faces of Helena, oh. Merrick, Violet and William. So everyone's here for us for special episode number four. Um, it's going to be a packed one, especially when we're all here doing a fast five. So let's go straight into it. Let's do fast five. Fast five. Okay, William, you were first to give a bit of a preview of what your topic is right now. Uh, what do you have for us this week? And sneak peek, I have seen it and it is awesome. Yeah, I think this is uh, quite an interesting invention from Disney Imagineering and Disney Research. I'm, I'm a great fan of their work. And the latest is this curious invention that they call the Holotile, which um, looks like... Uh, at first glance, a uh, just a hexagonal tiled floor, something like you would put in your bathroom. Um, but it has some quite special properties to it. It, um, it actually allows you to uh, walk in place. And so quite similar to some of the devices that we've seen for other, say, virtual reality gaming setups, which are actually quite extensive and are these sort of carriages that wrap around your waist um, and so forth. But the holotile is apparently something that allows just anyone without any extra armature to, um, to stand and then in a, a sort of... Um, uh, projected environment, um, walk around as if you were walking through uh, a virtual space, and it adjusts and adapts to your balance and your direction, and perhaps even to some degree. And of course, they're uh, they're quite aspirational about how they they market this on YouTube. They they don't, um, in the, at least in the videos I've seen, they haven't really talked too much about implementation. But it seems like it um, is an intelligent in quotes. Uh, enough to sort of anticipate your movements. And so the part of the difficulty with, I think, previous armatures like this was the fact that um, you still sort of had to have some armature hold you so that you wouldn't fall over or topple. Um, but this looks like it's um, getting to a place that uh, adapts to human movement uh, even better. And there's some of the, uh, on top of that, there's some of the the uh, funnier demonstrations that they have where people are sitting on chairs and it sort of moves them around. Um, but also the, the, the fun part is, is that on a, on, a t on a floor that has these sort of magical tiles, more than one person can stand on it and they can walk in different directions. And so that it starts to get to a place and, and folks are talking about this uh, in reference to Star Trek: The Next Generation, like we're getting, uh, we're getting closer and closer to what might actually appear to be a, a kind of holodeck experience. So, 
uh, super, super interesting. And uh, I hope it, I hope there's a consumer version of that that comes out sometime, but it looks very, uh, it looks very high end at the moment. Sort of circular tiles, that size of, well, whichever size coin I'm going to be wrong for everyone else. So uh, more than an inch, maybe, you know, four centimeters across. So they're middle sized tiles for now. And obviously when they zoom in on someone's feet, your feet does ripple across it a bit. So it might be like wearing some pretty bad shoe treads. I'm looking forward to them being able to not only of course make it bigger, that would be spectacular, but also miniaturize those. If they could have those or even go smaller, then I'd suggest part of the experience of, can I balance on these moving tiles or do I feel like I have to act Balance. So right now, I think there's a bit of human reaction loop to try and actively balance. Whereas if they could make those half size and half size again, that might be so smooth that it's just silky and you know pure magic. It's a little bit tough, and it does feel like uh, everyone's first time on a Segway or anything self-balancing. The how do I get off this thing? They haven't quite solved that yet because I think the moment you take a step to get off, it'll pull you back to the middle again. So there needs to be a command to I'm done here. So. Perhaps there's a big red button, a um, uh, panic button, but it's a brilliant piece of kit. Well, that might be my design. <laughs> it might be. You are trapped forever. Maybe that's Disney's brand new uh, tourist park design. You come once and you are there the whole year. Spectacular. Thanks for that, William. That's an awesome one. Uh, next, Violet, uh, forgot you on a loud and clear signal. You've got a memory machine. Do tell. I wanted to share this it's a concept for a memory machine. Um, it looks like a photo locket. So like one of those old school, wear a necklace, open it up and there's a photo inside. But instead, it's this 3D video kind of um, 3D capture that you can move through. So I'm not sure exactly how it works. But it's something along the lines of, like, you're always wearing it. Are you folks able to hear me, or am I cutting We've out? Got you, got you loud and clear. Okay. It, it looks like a combination of a, mm, an, a, an old iPad or flip phone style, but it really is just that small pocket locket kind of thing. Yeah, I almost wish that the design of it went even more lockety, like a metal. But... You know, what I really like about it is that my interpretation is that you're kind of always wearing it. It's ambiently, regularly capturing your memories in the background, just taking photos and like capturing that whole 3D environment that you're in. And I kind of assume that, you know, when you maybe open the locket and you return to a place you've been before, it's like bringing you back to how it was. Um, and I like this idea of instead of thinking about um, spatial AI, you know, thinking not just of those kind of big immersive spatial experiences, but like tiny little lockets and like this, the way that might change our interactions. Like think about how much we've changed um, uh, just since the iPhone, the way we like take photos of everything. We didn't used to do that. So like now if we have AI in the future, um, and we have these little lockets or wearables, maybe we don't take photos anymore and they just kind of happen on their own. So I'm kind of interested in how that might change behavior and that kind of thing. Absolutely. We've gone from a, um, a roll of film with 24 or 12 or 24 or 36 or somewhat 48 back from memory. But you would be super careful about when you took a photo. You'd be pretty 
you know, tight on when you would choose to actually click the shutter and then you'd have them presented all. Whereas now we can take 100 photos every day and they're somewhere in the cloud. They're nice and safe. But I guess the obvious rhetorical question is if, if you take a photo and no one looks at it, was it really a photo? This is a way to keep something <laughs> closer and keep something more front of mind, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Love it. And it, this, this is concept, like pure concept, or this is uh, prototype yeah, concept? I, no, pure concept. I keep pulling these concepts. I just, I like the ideas. All right. I might grab the next one. Um, now, Google Mind, and not just our Google Mind, but MIT and Stanford sadly must have heard our podcast last week, only four days after we talked about spatial LLMs and the semantics of space and place. Right, they released Spatial VLM, Vision Language Model. Uh, it's huge. It's um, based on the concept of visual question answering. So it's not a creation tool. It's a interpret this for me and ha us having a, having a chat about what and um, but even more about uh, you can be asking maths not just depth and ways but do you think these three objects form a right angle triangle um, I love the fact that uh, they say they are not just world first but they are metric based so sadly it's not freedom unit based that's okay we are using um, standard uh, um, SI units so apologies for 330 million people um, but it's a great result that really is the kind of thing that we were literally talking about last week of, is this capable, does it have pure reasoning or is it just interpreting a 2D picture till it pleases us and can answer questions until it gets it right? The actual way they form the data flow is they do start with two-dimensional images and then they do a depth estimation, which itself is a major new way of working. They're doing segmentation and depth estimation and they are actually recreating a point cloud or pseudo point cloud before they can then answer questions to it so actually answering the questions is probably the easy part i think once you've got a point cloud at that point although i'm going to throw in the hand wave here once you've got a 3d point cloud asking maths about where is what and how far is x from y is not too bad but the pathway and the training they've had to do to go from a two-dimensional image or video feed to on the fly being able to sense depth, segment based on depth, and then reconstruct that. That's a phenomenal uh, data sort of flow. And that is probably going to be a backbone of a lot more of these uh, technologies. Oh, probably in the next two, three weeks or two, three months. So um, this is, um, uh, it's it's huge already. So it's definitely not something for someone to run on their personal computer. Uh, and it's sort of in a sort of a class of its own right now. So it's absolutely one to watch. Uh, there is a paper and there is a project page. Code is not out, and that is the next burn. to be something in the commercial space that they're going to use and fold it into Google's um, cloud, uh, cloud world, or is it going to go in an open source way? We kind of know from the last 12 months that there will be a open source copy similar sort of paper and then code base probably within three months to follow along with this. So I think this is going to usher in the first of the brand new series. So quite phenomenal. Um, the, the results are, yep, getting in that magic level, but um, it probably is more tough for us to then, can we now think of enough questions that we can now ask and add to our, our stack of things we can be looking for? Because for us to think in that mode is something we haven't done yet. 
Perhaps it's most analogous to, um, I don't know, having young kids around saying, can you fetch me the thing? No, no, the other thing. No, it's, it's to the left of the other thing. That kind of iterative um, uh, self-correction um, uh, is probably what we need to be now starting to think about asking these models to be, to be doing. We normally don't think in those terms. We either think definite, yep, that was the correct answer. We can move on. This is now, everything is relative. Whew. So as I say, probably going to usher in uh, 2024's uh, copycat of, of this and uh, see who takes it and who runs with it from here. Quite phenomenal. Helena, over to you for Fast Five. Yes, hello everyone. I mentioned before we started recording, I've had a sick baby all week and so I haven't really um, been on the pulse of what's been going on anywhere in any of my, my pet industries, but I did happen to come across something in the marketing field that I found really, really interesting um, and I thought I would share. So um, the thing is the Algorithm Insights Report for LinkedIn, um, and they do one every year, and the new one is going to come out on the 5th of February. Um, and they've got uh, given a bit of um, detail in advance about the kind of things that are the performance drivers on LinkedIn. So, um, you know, a lot of people in our space obviously post on LinkedIn. And a lot of the time, what comes back is not a whole lot, you know. So you put out a post and you feel like there's not much engagement, um, maybe a couple of likes, comments, shares, whereas other posts they can just take off. And so what this report um, actually brought out now was the value of what they call the silent community. And especially in the tech space, um, this happens a lot. So essentially what they say is that there's a, probably about 95% of your future clients or of people who will end up reaching out to you are actually not the ones who are um, kind of liking, commenting, sharing, interacting, engaging in any way. They are part of the silent community. And so now what this Insights report has shown is that their um Silent engagement is actually a huge driver in the post success, so in how many impressions your post will garner. So if your silent community is clicking on the see more and reading your post or somehow like looking at it, even if they don't engage, then that leads to more and more people being shown the post. So that's kind of what um, is lying behind the the common thing of like, you know, your post is getting all of these impressions, but it's not really getting much engagement. And so you're like, why is it getting impressions if it's not getting engagement? So that's your silent community at work, which I found really interesting, um, especially in tech, because I feel like most of them are silent community. And also, um, in, in my own personal experience, I've had a lot of business come through LinkedIn and not one it has ever been uh, people who have actually engaged with my content there. So I think uh, like I would definitely anecdotally support the idea that 95% of your future clients are actually part of the silent community. So I guess uh, message is, you know, keep at it and, and don't be disheartened if you don't get a lot of active engagement um, because there is so much more going on under, under the surface that you might not even be aware of and then, you know, nothing happens and then everything happens um, because you've been building that and your community has been growing even if you haven't necessarily been noticing that happen. So I found that really interesting. My crushed ego feels so much better. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> is this LinkedIn first party report or is this a third party trying to uh, 
Um, and so this is um, LinkedIn kind of the, the guru guy, Richard van der Blom and a couple of other people who collaborate on this. So I believe it is a third party analysis, which actually got me thinking, how soon are we going to be seeing, you know, AI tools who can actually unpack some of these algorithms with a lot more certainty? Like, I would like to see that. Um, I did kind of have a bit of a look around the internet to see if I could find anything in the works, um, any chatter about that. The last, the only thing I found was someone asking a question um, in some forum in 2017 about whether it would be possible, and the answers were like unanimously. Eh, not really, but I think, you know, we've come a long way. So if okay. anyone's working on something like that, let me know because I would love Absolutely. to hear more about it. <laughs> so instead of click, like, and subscribe for LinkedIn, we need to uh, scroll past, read more, and read all comments. Maybe yeah. something like that. Are the hidden metrics that actually are the differentiate between... Yeah, just if they even hover it. over it longer, you know, if someone just kind of like pauses on that bit of page for a little longer, that's gotcha. already kind of giving LinkedIn the feedback it needs to give you the more exposure and kind of reward your posts. So that's really cool. Very good. I am not going to make a bot army that just has our posts constantly in the middle of the page, but you're right. It's if, if, if there are the finer points, I mean, obviously liking something is the biggest signal ever, but if there are periphery sort of data points, then be the ones to elevate a post beyond its levels. Wild. Mm. Thanks, that Helena. Merrick, over to you. Oh, you have a two-minute paper which is required viewing and required subscription. Speaking of click, like, and subscribe, Merrick. Yes, absolutely. And I wish we did my piece of news right after your piece of news because these two are really related. And it's exactly uh, about what we spoke about last time. Uh, when it comes to spatial reasoning or understanding three-dimensional space uh, with uh, LLMs, large language models. It turns out they're not really good at it. And what it takes is special kind of training, special kind of approach. And that is exactly what's coming out of spatial VLM that you mentioned, but also related thing just came out also out of Google's DeepMind, and that is alpha geometry. And the more I think about it, I realize it's actually about something slightly different, but also related. So in this case, you present the, the AI a geometrical problem, and it can come up with proofs and use all the tools a, mathematics, a mathematician would use. Uh, so it's really interesting the way it's uh, actually performing this kind of, this kind of uh, task. Uh, Google themselves that describe it, if I can just, just read a little bit. Uh, alpha geometry is a neurosymbolic system made up of, of a neural language model and a symbolic deduction engine, which work together to find proofs for complex geometry theorems. So you can imagine there's this, this faster uh, model that's trying to come up with solutions to a geometric problem, and then there's this slower, you might say more precise mechanism that's uh, sort of uh, evaluating these these options. And the interesting part is that uh, it's actually, they say it's on par with gold medalists from uh, the Mathematical Olympiad, which is really impressive. And uh, it, it comes down to, to, to training this model to a different kind of reasoning than just, you know, kind of trying to follow up on the most logical step a text would be. This requires deeper understanding of the context and, uh, and uses uh, 
tools that are quite unique to the to the field that you're trying to uh, sort of cover or understand that makes any sense and is it going to be a tool for people to incorporate into other workflows or other tool sets or is it right now a research of deep focused tool to try and crack um you know basically every math problem with alice betty charlie and david all you know go to the market I believe it could be a separate tool, but also like we're seeing more and more specialized approaches to various, you know, niches of say human level cognition when it comes to 3D space. So this is probably one part of it. And uh, the, the research you presented, you mentioned kind of takes similar approach and it's, it's kind of related in, in, in design and, and very interesting work. And all code is released on GitHub. That's phenomenal, Merrick. Nice one. Well, all the links to these fast fives will be in the uh, show notes. But for now, let's move on to deep dive. Deep dive. Welcome back. This is Deep Dive. This week, we're going to be talking about spatial UX, that is user experience or user experiences. And uh, not only is this a massive topic and has all the elements of technology and spatial awareness and the human factor, um, we have some serious experts on our hosting panel. Um, we'll actually start. Um, Mirek, you have been uh, playing with, well, I call it an operating system is the term I've used to describe it to you know friends and family and workmates. It's a way of actually being able to command, control, direct robots, drones, and interact with the virtual world and how that can react with the things we need to move around us. Um, that is not only a massive technical undertaking and to make it into a product and a working beast, but also you've actually had to figure out how it works. And uh, two years ago now, you released your seminal video called Augmented Robotality, which is a great view. And not only is it, um, goes off in some deep, dark uh, tangents and covers a lot of uh, fields, it really does show a fantastic demo two years ago, how you might be able to work with um, interacting in a naturalistic kind of way. Um, Merrick, um, it's been two years and, you know, that uh, video is still the test of time, but uh, can you give us a rundown of what you've been working on the last two years, but I guess what challenges you've actually had to work with, with redesigning and playing with the way to actually have the human be part of this uh, operating system for spatial controlling? Love an update. Yes, I think I need to step a little bit back, though, That's just, to, just to explain my motivation a little bit to our listeners. Um, because I've been playing actively as a full-time job, not, you know, as playing and playing uh, with augmented reality for about seven or eight years. And I always saw it as an interface between a person and location and a task. And I'm saying that because we're seeing lots of different approaches in the industry. Uh, the most uh, kind of obvious way of looking at this new technology is that it can allow us to do the same things that we're doing on our computers or, or flat screens, just in 3D space. Uh, I also looked into that for, for a little while, but then I started looking into areas that are only uh, possible or enabled by this kind of, uh, this kind of interface. So you're a person, you put on some sort of headset, you're in a physical location, and you want to do something practical there. And with the task, maybe some sort of AI can help you 
and that could be a program or it can be something you know more like a large language model uh doesn't really matter as long as it's useful uh and as long as it enables you to do the task better so one of the areas i explored was using augmented reality in this kind of approach for generative designs so imagine you're designing a three-dimensional structure that you want to manufacture and you want it to fit a 3d space precisely so you're in a physical space you have an ar headset on you you can control uh, an interface that enables you the, the computer that's working on this task with you to understand your intent and then you have a construction technique described somewhere in the cloud where you can do the heavy uh, number crunching. And, and there's a part, part, part of the intelligence that allowed me to design something that I can immediately know I can make, I can manufacture. I know I'm running into physical constraints with material, but I also have creative freedom to design whatever I want to the extent of the constraints of the construction technique. So I played with that and I still believe there's something to it. But after half a year on this project, I have more questions than answers. So I put that twice and I looked into applying the same kind of thinking to the area of robotics. So typically these days, robot is a semi-autonomous machine that does something practical. And human, when a human is in the loop, it's usually somebody with a tablet or a computer standing nearby, just making sure the robot is doing what it's supposed to be doing and, and, and won't hurt anybody or run into some sort of problems. Uh, I think that doesn't scale very well. And if you imagine two years from now, say a construction site where you have maybe 20 machines, specialized robots working on specialized tasks such as drilling or anchoring or cutting pieces or you know tiling all these little things that we can automate in this industry you will only need one human as a you know human foreman that's in charge of this pack of uh, of machines and the interface that allows you to cognitively even absorb what's going on is augmented reality right uh, so you can imagine being able to see uh Say a robot is planning its own path through the through the job site, and that's that's a real time task that the robot is doing itself based on its sensors. But you can see that as that person who's who's you know controlling this kind of work group and predict that the robot's going to run into a bucket or a person or another robot, and you can you can you know intervene. Uh, similarly, uh, you could also see three-dimensional data if we're on the construction side uh, you might be thinking of a cat model that's overlaid over the job site and you can see a breakdown of each individual task that's designated to different machines that will work on it at some point but you could see the progress you could see the reference that the robot is using to sort of achieve the, the common goal much faster and so i'm thinking of a world where this kind of human machine collaboration is commonplace and in order to do that uh, you need to break it down a little bit because it's, it's it's quite a lot to to take in so on one end you're designing for a person and that's you know an interface that the human brain can uh, make sense of and this thing needs to be predictable fast to use with some learning curve we're used to learn new tools but it needs to be reliable 
in the way that uh, robots coming at me, the first thing I do must stop it. And this must be, you know, something that, that you can intuitively rely on. Uh, there's only so much a human brain can take in. So you're using all sorts of clues and tricks uh, to actually convey much more information that you would be able to absorb in, say, flat surface or on a map, uh, on a two-dimensional screen. And you can do this in 3D. So it's one part of it. Uh, the other part is to design for the machine element. So what I'm doing right now is building this middleware that sits on a, it's built on top of the ROS operating system, a robot operating system ROS. And that is something that you install, one thing that you install in a robot, and the robot connects to this whole environment and presents itself to whoever's interested. And then it starts streaming data, uh, whatever you might be interested in. It might be this path planning, or maybe it's looking for an object, or maybe it's uh, about to execute a task that it's you know been thinking about for, for a while. And you can see all that because it's being streamed to another client and it's being done real fast. It's a peer-to-peer -peer connection. I can get really nerdy about that and I bet nobody's interested in it. But this sort of thing didn't exist and was essential to actually connect uh, a robot to another client on the same network real fast and be able to stream multiple uh, sets of data and video and audio uh, to wherever you actually want to consume it. So I've been building that for a while, apart from you know having this, this other bit ready, which is the interface for a person. That's what I've been experimenting with for a really long time. Uh, but the path to it takes you know, detours like that. So I built this, this middleware that allows you to now control a robot over WebRTC protocol. And that itself has become its own product that I'm now spinning off as, a, as, an, as an open source uh, initiative. And the next step will be to take the data and plug that to the human element where we actually started to, you know, finish the whole circle. It almost makes me think that you're designing uh, spatial user experiences, not just for people, but you're also designing robot spatial user experiences. Like, do you have to design the interface for the robot? Like, have you thought about what they perceive and it, how is that different for them than what a human needs to perceive? That's a very good question. And I have thought about it a lot because I'm actually going all the way in to learn about how this works and to be able to, you know, understand it on the, on the fundamental level. So the way robots these depends on the hardware equipment. Then you might have a laser or some rangefinder or, you know, track robot in space somehow. Um, it comes down always to what the what what is the task the robot needs to perform, and how much is enough for the task. So quite often there's no you know uh, high level understanding of the space if you just need to go from A to B on a three dimensional two dimensional plane and avoid obstacles that present themselves to you. It's mm -hmm. it's actually very very simple and driven by algorithms that are you know that that have been in use for a while and that are pretty optimized so the robot doesn't have really any experience it's just you know oh there's a thing i need to go a little bit to the right because i'm gonna hit it and you know 
Yeah, you also, you were saying something earlier about the user experience for this being through these glasses is important, it being there versus being on like an iPad or something, because um, humans can only handle so much information. It's like we can only translate so quickly. And so creating, a, I think like that's, Maybe one of the really important things about um, spatial UX or natural user interfaces is that kind of directness. And like something that we've been reading about recently is um, embodied cognition or that idea mm -hmm. that humans, we don't just think with our, um, what we see, we think with our hands and our bodies and where we're at and like the spatial orientation of something next to us is like actually how we of grok what's happening um so it made me think about like what other um kind of sensory inputs are important for someone when they're designing a space like what is it materially that's spatial that a flat computer can't do right now like what interactions do they need to be able to do like do they need to make sure that they're not tripping over something do they need to make like what what is it exactly that is going to push us beyond the keyboard and the mice that we're using right now yeah i think that's that's a very good point and i think like from what i've tested on myself and others who are willing to try uh you realize that and that's not a new thing to say but but our visual throughput is much bigger in terms of information we can absorb than, than any other sense. So, and we're also really good with, uh, with uh, spatial understanding and, and spatial memory. So you might, you might be, um, like last episode I mentioned really briefly, this, this uh, thing, people who compete in, in, in memory, uh, mm -hmm memory games what is it called Mem memory, memory palace yeah. memory policy oh. yeah, yeah so that's a concept that that you use to remember you know a lot of data by mapping it on your perception of a physical space and in in, in, in my case everything's real time but i think you can really you can provide hints to people to to sort of uh understand what's going on in a really subtle way so that their subconscious can take it while the person is, is cognitively doing something else. And you can do it with spatial clues. You can do it with colors. You can do it with sound. And as long as you don't overwhelm the person, this is all quite unique, you know, set of tools that you don't really have when you're, when you're dealing with, with two-dimensional information or two-dimensional interface. So the immersion is really could be the immersion could be used for like these these practical practical cases. And I'm thinking sound is really interesting element to it or color in like the visual you know uh, element. Yeah, I think people need to really understand too like how painful it actually is to do things where you're, it's not spatial. So like. <laughs> Probably people that are on job sites really understand this, but like going through a stack of drawings, finding the right page, like finding the piece of little, like coming through a little piece of text that a wall is supposed to go somewhere and then getting a measuring tape and like 
there's so many translations that happen because they're not uh, you know it was really funny i used to work on this uh this generative design product at google and the funniest thing was that when we um when my boss came in and was learning about the way the construction industry worked for the first time he was like wait you take a 3d digital model of the building slice it into plans, print it out, and then build the 3D building. <laughs> like, why are we doing all these translations? And try not to lose it. I've <laughs> yeah, like... Who on their resume like, have, my superpower is I can visualize from 2D to 3D. It's even funnier because if you... Have you guys heard of Dusty Robotics or like similar yeah. projects and products? So they take a 2D uh, floor plan and print it on the foundation right of a building what what actually was common before this kind of technology was around is that a person with a twine and chalk would and, and a tape measure would transfer uh, the cat drawing to the job site and then it will get it will get built so it's it's even funnier than that sound like medieval methods when you say it and then like if you go yeah. to a job site today i'm sure a lot of people like this is actually how most buildings get built today I love the fact that uh, the tools that um, you've been building are to actually release that. I, I think we've chatted before many years ago, actually, Merrick, of that concept you um, at the start of if there's three drones in the air, you can probably look behind you and there's three people on three controllers actively controlling it. That's the human, that's the trust sort of, sort of thing. Um, uh, I think you're probably one of the only people who's actually uh, looked forward the 10-year problem of, look, if you're going from three drones to five drones, or three robots or three machines to five. Sure, you could justify, well, one of those, one person might be a hand or two, sure, hand wave. But you, I think you're the only one who's actually been able to say, yes, but what happens when there's 20? What happens when there's 50? Whatever number is big enough to actually get people out of the mindset of there is a crowd of people behind you all with hands on sticks to actually um, escape out of how do I actually magnify my own ability to perceive what's happening, control what's happening, and with all those data streams, have a filtering mode of uh, this robot is on rails, it's it's fine, I'm not going to get run over. This one, though, coming towards me, that's going to be in my way. Either I need to move or I need to do the stop signal. I'm trying to do my YMCA sort of stuff here. Um, a signal to actually stop it and to get that prioritization, that spatial awareness of relative to me there's a lot of things like if you look down at your device i'm this dot and there's something coming towards me you can sort of estimate whether it's going to hit you or not it doesn't work when something's coming to you at that sort of speed or pace or risk level versus eyes up am i okay yes i'm fine i can go back to what i was doing versus no i need to intervene here exactly like you're saying we want to amplify our capabilities and multiply what we can do with machines, right? So I'm looking at the current state and I know there's there's tons of problems that people are dealing with. So I pick this one and I think it scales much, much better and allows us to then have really one human brain or, you know, able-bodied hand that can actually help physically with human dexterity and machines that are getting smarter. But as they get smarter, we'll want more from them and there'll still be need probably for, you know, this kind of like symbiotic, uh, symbiotic relation. And yeah, I think it's, it's quite feature ahead. I think one thing that's interesting too is that you're thinking about 
um, almost like almost completely new types of jobs and interactions with computers. Whereas, yes. like, I feel like a lot of the interactions and jobs that I'm thinking about in terms of spatial U UX is like, just how do we stop? How do we change the way we're using computers today? Like, I'm so over the keyboard and the mouse and the like clicking the manual data entry of flat user experiences today where you're like typing little things in. And I'm interested in, um, you know, I, I feel like you're imagining these future interactions that we're going to be able to have with new types of jobs. We're going to be using robotics. But I'm even interested in spatial UX for like, um, why the heck to communicate with all these people? Am I like clicking <laughs> into little window boxes and sending them an email? <laughs> like, I just feel like there's, I'm curious what folks think, like, are now in the future, if we have spatial user experience or more natural interactions where we like wave with our hands or we're like speaking and pointing, um, what kinds of interactions are going to move from the flat computer? We, you know, we kind of joked about it last time where like, we don't want, you know, surgery seems like one of these things that like really needs the hand, but maybe certain tasks don't really require spatialness. So like which ones are going out of the computer and which ones are staying there? If I, if I can just comment on it, it's, I, I'm complicit of trying to just convert what we already have on, you know, current interfaces to this new thing, uh, called augmented reality. So in 2016, I even, I ran a Kickstarter with this like vision of, of, you know, what the new interface could be, but then you see that the same thing around you, I think my interface was better than others, by the way, but then you see the other kind <laughs> of thinking in the industry and huge amounts of money being burned on achieving just that in, you know, various levels of quality or, or, or design. Don't mention any names uh, on here. No, 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 I don't want to. Uh, <laughs> but it never went anywhere. And so at some point, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at what others are doing and, and promising, and you start to be more critical about, you know, how we use tools and what actually justifies new technology. And you see how these companies aren't going anywhere because they just try to recreate whatever we have. And nobody really cares. If I want to type, I'll get a good keyboard. If I want to um, draw, I'll get a really nice tablet, you know, and it, there's like technology for certain things. And I don't think we need anything spatial to do most of our current digital work. Uh, so see, I'm, I, I, think this, I, I started. I think this is where... Sorry. I think this is where, you know, the podcast always needs a little bit of fight. So I think this is where I disagree with you. I think like, <laughs> this is where you please add like Insert. musical sound effects Music right there. Do. Yeah, exactly. I feel like, look at what, look at us right now. Look how sad this is. We're all staring at our computer screens right now, like alone in different spaces. How cool would it be if like we felt like we were actually around a fire together like you know like having people over for dinner is so much different than this and not to like you know i love this podcast and i love getting together but i really like if someone was looking in on me right now just sitting here alone in a hotel not living room. your best life exactly <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah yeah it's like just 
just just to comment just just to comment on that you're talking vr and that's perfectly fine use case for it and i agree but the first time you'll want to type in vr you'll be back to your keyboard you know because it's just it's made for it and we're used to used to it over the years it's fine you don't need to reinvent the wheel to to move forward i think but i'm i'm not even talking vr i i'm also just to be another naysayer like not a huge fan of vr i think there's all these other spatial user experiences and interfaces that we can get now with ai and spatial computing like even just the ability to um walk around a house and have a device on me or around me in my environment where i can speak and call someone and uh, maybe see like various projections of things that they're doing in my space like maybe it feels like you're in my space because you're um, projected on the wall or something i think um william had this idea yesterday you know like what if there's a scenario where um a friend might be able to come into your house and uh you hear like a knock on the door and they are like kind of uh projected onto your wall if you let them in you know like the hallway on your living wall paint tv screen and they come into your kitchen and you have a conversation with them semi-naturally even though they're also just doing a zoom discord teams call well, it's, it's, it's a little difficult to match the physical spaces, right? That's the problem because you walk through your open living room and, and that's your friend's, uh, I don't know, kitchen table. But you can also meet in, in Skyrim and have much more fun, you know? That's, that's <laughs> to each their own. To each their own. Well, one and all, we're going to leave it there. Teaser for next week. Next week, like in seven days' time, is the release of the Apple Vision Pro. So we will dedicate one episode to that beast. Helena, you're not going to be able to join us, so we'll be down to four. So that's okay. We're going to be doing fast fives on people's reactions on day one to the Vision Pro. And then we'll, with four of us, we are definitely going to, we could well have a hung jury. Uh, We'll see what the uh, judges say by the end of that episode. But... Look, love it or hate it, I think is absolutely the point of view of it. It is going to be one of the biggest topics for a while. We'll see how long the hype lasts and we'll see how long before an uptick and before a version two. But that one we'll cover next week. So thanks one and all. Just wave goodbye. Sorry, Violet, we can't do a wave in person or share the cup of tea around the kitchen table. From me, there's no shrimp on the Barbies, but I'm going to have a lovely Australia day. And to you all. Take care and we'll catch you next week. Thanks, everyone. See ya. Bye. If you'd like more news and insights about spatial AI or have a story or interesting topic you'd like us to cover, reach out to us. Or better yet, come and join the community at Spatial. All the links are in the show notes.